two, and three. Uh, welcome to Almost World Podcast. This is Almodor Jr., your host, and we have uh, someone very intellectual. He's a uh, Is my friend Christian Watkins. Uh, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, Elmo. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure. I've I've been catching up on some of your older ones that you've done, and you do a great job asking questions. And I did, I just I had to get on the program. It's just it's an awesome podcast in my <laughs> opinion. But yeah, I'm 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 Christian J Watkins. I am a YouTube content creator, uh, Twitch streamer on occasion. I break down philosophy politics all those sorts of things anything that you could have an opinion on i'm probably arrogant about and i um i have debates and conversations and all sorts of things i moderate for the atheist community of austin i am pretty new to these conversations generally i've only been an atheist for about six or seven months but i've been interested in philosophy for many years and i was a former debater on both the state and national level and as well as an extemporaneous speaker. So mm -hmm. I'm not new to the ball game, but I am new to the specific inning, I would say. Yeah, and um and uh, as you identify as an atheist, you know like um uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't I don't want to get in on the atheist versus theist debate, but I want to know more about your specific worldview that you hold, you know? And I I'm really impressed by your uh, eloquence and how you state them, but I, I would want to know Uh, what your what your specific uh, worldview is right now? So I would say that I'm an atheist, and what I mean by atheist is what I think most atheists mean, which is that I have the belief that there are no gods, and that is a bit different than a gnostic, because a gnostic would say I assert that there are no gods through knowledge, but I do in fact believe there are no gods. I lived I live as as if there are no gods and I see no good evidence that there are gods and because of that I consider myself an atheist. The agnostic part is where I don't claim to know that there are in fact zero gods, but I am in fact convinced that there are no gods. Yeah, other than the atheist stuff, uh, what else do you hold as a worldview? So generally I use three things to describe what I look at the world as. I look at the world through the lens of naturalism. I look at the world through materialism. And I look at the world through epistemology and skepticism. Just just generally good epistemological methods like skepticism and those sorts of things. But it's, 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 a, whole, it's a whole mess and jumble of things that I still work out daily. So on specific issues, I implore a lot of different techniques. But generally, I would say that naturalist, materialist, And skeptic. Yeah, and um, I I also I also think that um, you know, we've talked a lot before, and you're a compatibilist, and that's something that you don't hear much from a naturalist or a materialist. So yeah, so I, I the the reason why I hesitate to use hard determinist or compatibilist labels is that I I generally am one to accept consensus of those who are more intelligent than I am, and that's that's just out of humility. I'm I'm generally not really well read on the neurology, and I do understand that the consensus of neuroscientists is hard determinism. That you know, in that sort of thing. But I operate in my life as if I have agency, because when I assent to propositions or when I engage in conversations, generally it's better to presume that I'm an agent as opposed to presuming that I'm not. And I would say that. There is there's some good arguments for not for against hard determinism. I'm not sure if I would say I'm not sure if I was go I would go as far to say that I'm convinced that determ that hard determinism is wrong. I'm just not convinced that it's right, and I would say that 
I need to have more of those conversations because the the in-depth analysis that one has to do to work out their position on free will is something that I that I did in the beginning and then stopped talking about. And now I'm trying to I, I'm trying to solidify that part of my worldview, and that that's still very much an in progress position. Yeah, and I I I like the idea that you uh, look at it as an in progress, you know, because um, a lot of people are afraid to say that because it puts them in a position that um, they might not know something about this, and people don't like saying they don't know stuff, you know. Even in a, a scientist would say that. Um, they have theories for it, but they they don't actually believe it it to uh to be that way. But um, in terms of, for example, how you uh, uh well, what do you call that um uh mix or you establish a a bridge between your compatibilism and hard determinism. How did that that work for you? Is that the is it something that you you have a sort of a dualist position on that? Well, so I generally say that my position on this issue can be summed up in I'm convinced that most of the universe and most of everyone else is out of my control, but the one thing that I at least elucidatorily have control over is my own actions. And whether it's elucidatory or not doesn't change the fact that I'm convinced that I have that choice. So. And, and you, you could make a really compelling deterministic argument that the reason why I feel like I have that choice is because it's determined for me. And you could make an even better argument and say that choice would, would suggest that the material conditions around you were malleable in a way that could make those choices different, in which case they aren't in reality and therefore hard determinism is true. Like these arguments are good and I wouldn't say I disagree with them per se, but I would argue that most people act as though agency is true. And that assenting to propositions in the absence of agency is a little ridiculous to me. And I would say that I'm, I'm kind of in that middle space where I'm not convinced of hard determinism and I'm also not fully convinced of compatibilism. And I'm just floating in the middle and waiting for someone to make a really, really fantastic argument to push me one way. So it, it seems that um, you see two, so, uh, two good arguments uh, on both sides, but you... And so you're on the fence about it, uh, but but it, it means that in a way you're also holding a dualistic view because um, you, you are you're holding an a priori argument, for example, the assenting pro to proposition, but also recognizing the the empirical evidence that were from scientific research, which is posteriori. Yeah, so I, I would I would say that it's it's not technically dualist because I'm not actually assenting to both propositions at the same time. I'm withholding judgment until the propositions are sufficiently demonstrated. So I wouldn't say that I'm holding both of them, but I'm considering both of them in in a, in a light that I find to be critical. So it so um I guess that uh you, you might might um get a lot of of uh backlash on on this kind of worldview because it, it, in a way it's uh, seems I don't know incoherent for some. But uh, for me, it was actually just intellectual integrity, you know, because you see a good argument and you don't dismiss it just because of uh, of a consensus. Yeah, I, I really don't care about backlash. Like I, I take the positions that I take because I find good arguments for them. And if I'm wrong, then someone should convince me that I'm wrong and not bully me into believing what I used to believe. So if you want me to be a hard determinist and, and if, there, if there's my atheist friends out there who want to convince me of that, 
ask for a conversation, convince me that it's true. It's not that hard. I'm, I'm open-minded as can be. I've changed every position that I've ever held in the past year and a half. So it's not, it's not like I'm closed minded. Yeah. And um, I, I really love that uh, about you, dude. That because um, some people think that just because uh, so if the, if you prove them wrong, that it degrades them or humiliates them. But not at all, because uh, we as humans, we it, it's a it's a premise already that we we don't know shit about the world and we're just figu- figuring stuff out. And um, my real problem with this sort of thinking is the dogmatism, you know. Because it, it, the moment that um, you don't accept new ideas just because of y- you have to hold on to your old ones, uh, that's really dangerous even for in this modern age we have. For sure, I, I agree. That there's, there's, so I, I always paint it this way. There is a contingency of ideas that we don't know about. And the amount of things that we don't know is constant. And once we know about them, the amount of things that we don't know goes down. So what I would say is holding positions that are false is actually putting them in the category of you don't know. If you don't know the correct answer, having a false solution isn't actually an answer. So what I would say is the only way to believe as many true things as possible and and not believe as many false things is to be willing to change your mind because it turns out that you could be believing something right now that is actually false which falls under the category of things you don't know. And I would say that I want to know true things. And by consequence, by consequence of that, I'll abandon false things. And the only way, in my opinion, that you can be sure that you're right is through repeated constructive critical dialogue that forces you to consider your worldviews in ways that you wouldn't normally consider it. So, um, you know, but uh, what I think about uh, philosophy in terms of skepticism, though, is that um, any position can be uh, re- reduced by or uh, can be reduced by uh, some skeptic you know so even if you're a dualist a physicalist whatever position you have is will be will be able will be uh, well it will be uh, vulnerable for a skeptic that's what I think and um, when you look at when we try to find out the truth I I would assume that we have to make certain assumptions, uh, presuppositions, and that's that's the that's the way I think we could uh, get closer to finding out what's really happening in the world. So one thing that I'll say is I don't actually use skepticism to find truth. I use skepticism to rule out things that are not true. And what I would say is by by consequence of ruling out things that are not true, I am closer to the truth. So. Like, for example, when I'm evaluating a proposition with skepticism, my lack my lack of ability to believe something or to assent to a proposition isn't me finding truth. It's me eliminating possibilities that may or may not be true. So what I would say is if I'm skeptical of five propositions and there's one remaining, by virtue of my skepticism, I've eliminated false possibilities and gotten to the one that I think is most likely. But then I would have to evaluate the one remaining proposition through my other worldviews or through, my other, through the other aspects of my worldview. And then I would say, okay, we've used skepticism to get to a couple really good ideas, and let's continue to use it to, to eliminate until we have the best possible explanation that's sufficient to conclude those sorts of things. And then we'd use things like naturalism, materialism, uh, those sorts of things to get to conclusions about propositions that we think are true through you know 
removing all all the crappy options. Can I can I swear? Removing all the shitty options, and then we're left with an option that is not so terrible. And then we use other methodologies on top of skepticism to find out if that's sufficient enough to adopt belief. Okay, okay, uh, that sounds um, pretty convincing. Uh, but um, in in terms of, for example, morality, um, th th these are things that uh, take uh, a really lo long debate. And if uh, but until now, there's still a debate on it. But what what views do you hold on that? Well, if if by morality you mean preference, is that is that generally what you're saying? Like the people prefer to have certain things happen a certain way? No, like um how we how humans determine what is right and wrong. I think that's that's what I mean by morality. So how human beings determine right and wrong is by calling on their preferences. So I would say that if how you determine right and wrong is based on something that's necessarily subjective, then morality in a sense is and we, so what we can say about morality is that it's epistemically subjective in a sense that every single person is calling towards their own life experiences to make moral statements because what is right and what is wrong is heavily contingent i would argue entirely contingent on someone's individual preferences but even if that wasn't the case even if there was a realm in which it's objectively wrong to punch a child right if that realm existed, that isn't an ought statement. Like the, the the fact that something does exist as an objective fact doesn't mean you ought to believe it. In the same way that if evolution is an objective fact, that doesn't mean you ought to believe it. It means that it's true. So you, you cannot believe something that's true because truth statements aren't ought statements. So what I would say is even if it was the case that there was a God that said it is true that murder is wrong, that wouldn't be the same thing as you ought to believe murder is wrong. So I would say that there, the way that morality is framed is making it necessarily subjective. Now, if morality is a goal, and then we find steps to achieve that goal, and if one of those goals is, quote, well-being or reducing suffering or finding out, doing the most amount of good, those sorts of frameworks can have objective steps that we can take but never once do they become ought statements because an ought statement requires that the individual actor should do something based on their value system. And because we already established that preference is necessarily subjective, the only way that oughts can be objective is if everyone had the same preferential systems. And that wouldn't really mean objective, it would mean universal. So I would say that there's, there's a real pickle that people who think morality is objective are in and i haven't seen anyone find a way to remove the is ought gap in that way yeah and um i guess the is ought gap uh usually is um tr uh, they attempt to answer it with the with the that if you believe in god then there is the connection i guess with it is an ought so if you believe in god and god says it is wrong to murder I would say that definitionally that isn't an ought. Like God, God doesn't say you ought to believe that it's wrong to murder because he's not asking for your value judgments. God is telling you what you're supposed to do. So that, is, that isn't an ought statement. So I really, I've never understood why there's such a large contingency of religious people who think that God in the Bible is making pronouncements of what you ought to do because God isn't, doesn't care about your preferences. 
An ought statement is calling on someone's preferences and saying, based on other presuppositions you have in your worldview, you ought to do something. Like if it were to say, Elmo, you're a skeptic, so you ought to not believe propositions until, until they're demonstrated because I'm calling on something you already believe. That could be an ought statement. But if I were to say it is true that evolution is the best explanation for the diversity of life on this planet, that isn't me saying you ought to believe it. Just like God saying murder is wrong isn't him saying you ought to not murder. He's saying you should not, which is an is statement. It's not an ought statement. Okay. I understand your point. So and then in, in terms of whether or not uh, morality is objective, uh, it's, it's still the outcome is still determined by the subjective uh, I guess the history of an individual uh, and also a mix of genetics. Yeah, I mean I mean what you ought to do is determined by factors outside of your control. So like for example, you're you're someone who's poor and you have a choice between robbing a convenience store and starving. Perhaps it is the case that you ought to rob the convenience store because your your intuitions, your preference, your life situation is in such a way to where your preferences inform you that you ought to rob the convenience store. Now you could say that is wrong. It is wrong based on standards of things that we can agree upon. But saying that something is wrong is different than saying you ought not do it. Because I can say it is wrong to, to steal, but I, I can't tell you that you ought not to steal if that goes against your preferential value systems. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in, in terms of, for example, how we hold people accountable for their actions, then I guess that we would have to take everything in, in consideration, including their history and, and we already do in genetics. Law. We do. I mean, we, we don't send mentally ill people to jail. We send them to mental institutions. So you're, you're, the reasons why you commit a crime are are used in English common law. I mean, they, we, we, we already do that in, in a way, and I would prefer we did it more, is we, we try to explain why someone did something and determine that if the reason why they did that was makes them incapable of rehabilitation, then I guess we incarcerate them for the sake of society. But generally speaking, you become a much less judgmental person if you understand that most people are operating on ought statements, personal subjective ought statements, and saying that it is wrong to steal or that it is wrong to, um, you know, fight the power or it is wrong to burn down buildings. Saying those things is wrong doesn't change the fact that people have a subjective assessment of what they ought to do. And a god being introduced into, into that equation doesn't change that fact. And I don't know how it could. Um, then when, when it comes to, for example, um, how we uh, look at, let's say, uh, the soul, because um, that the, the soul is uh, a concept that is actually uh, uh, really important when it comes to uh, human to our to human society, because the the soul actually it connotates the dig human dignity, and um, that is where uh, we actually establish what. We would we would define where we we were we, where we would uh, draw the lines on violations of rights and um m and also crimes. So I'm curious. So, so would you say that you believe that a soul exists? Well, I, I don't know of its ontology, but that um I'm I'm just saying that in human society we we have the presumption that souls uh, exist or that human essence. Is is much more valuable than, let's say, a, a dog 
or a, a cow. So we have Intuit, and this isn't true for everyone, by the way. I know plenty of I know plenty of people who would prefer that their dog lived over some random human. Like it, it, it is in fact not the case that human beings have this universal attachment to other human beings. There's plenty of humans who would rather have, uh, you know, fem- uh, uh, dog companionship than actual human companionship. But in spite of that. What I think, what I think you're trying to say is that it seems to be the case that human beings have a particular affinity for for those alike to them. No, well, I'm saying that um, in in how we in in human society, uh, for example, the universal uh, base human basic rights. Yeah, um, so we we t- we have the assumption, or we have we start on the premise that human dignity is something that is. We ha- we must uh, get, uh, ascertain or we must uh, give value, so it, it it's a presumption that um, when we when we violate someone's rights in a way we 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 should be accountable for it. So I would say that the basis of t- to me and and I'm I'm someone who's perhaps unique on this. To me, the ba- the basis of rights has always been this concept and there's there's a few things you could say but i would say generally if you assent to these two propositions you can get all of the basic human rights that we think exist like the right to life things like that the first proposition you have to assent to is that life is preferable to death that's the first one if we can accept that life is preferable to death then we can establish the next one which is that in the best of all possible scenarios the ability to assent to a proposition without coercion and with informed enthusiastic consent is the best possible scenario, then with those two axioms, we can build a moral system that's very complex. And I'll give you an example. If we're saying life is preferable to death is the main axiom, and that informed enthusiastic consent is the second axiom, how can we say murder is wrong? It's pretty simple. Murder violates both axioms. It, it isn't informed and enthusiastic consensually, and it also is rejecting the proposition that life is preferable to death. And those and those two axioms can build, I, let's just put it this way, I haven't seen a social problem that I don't think can't be based in those two axi- axioms. And those are two very basic things to assent to. Yeah, um, I, I would agree that the, uh, those, are, those, are, those two would be axioms. But again, um, those two axioms are also uh, based on uh, uh, an assumption because I, I, I would also uh, make a... Yeah, they're presuppositions, and so um, if 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 I were to uh, let's say find someone else who would disagree with both axioms or even just one, then I would um, I would say that in a way it's uh, more of a socially constructed uh, idea or concept in which serves a utilitarian purpose. So I would say that if you found someone who disagreed with those two axioms, then them existing is an oxymoron. And also, so so he, so here's here's my here's my like dangerous argument that I'm still trying out. So anyone in the future who sees me retract this, just, I apologize in advance. Someone who rejects the proposition that these two axioms are true shouldn't be alive and shouldn't be engaging in propositional assent- a sentence. Because saying that you have a preference is saying that your consent matters. And then saying that and then being alive to give that consent is affirming both axioms. So I would say there isn't a single human being on earth who doesn't affirm to those axioms. Well, um, that, that I, I don't, I'm not sure that would be the case, but um, um, if you, 
I guess that if you have to engage in a in a rational argument and and you don't um, submit to these two axioms, then there is no place for an argument with someone like that, right? Is that, is that what you're saying? Well, they shouldn't even be making arguments because the only way that arguments make sense is if you can voluntarily assent to propositions, right? So the only reason why arguments about about anything make sense is if you can make good arguments through logic and reasoning or whatever, but they have to be yours, right? So what I would say is if you're going to say that I reject axiom one, that life is preferable to death, then you're saying death is preferable to life, which means that you existing is an oxymoron. But if you're saying that you don't, if you don't think that consent, informed enthusiastic consent is a primary motivator, then what you just said is wrong because by saying that you assent to the proposition that it isn't true, you're demonstrating that you do care about consent because you're you're consenting to the proposition, you're consenting to the negative proposition. But if if for some if someone were to say that they in a way they would be an existential nihilist that um uh. Prefer preference doesn't re isn't really an odd statement as well. It's just, uh, it's just is. So, um, I could prefer death for for life, but I'm not. I don't. I don't see an an odd statement to to act on that, and therefore, um, it it would seem unjustified to, uh, if some it or it that or that um, uh, uh, having a presupp supersu presupposed action and. And making a, a judging me on that would seem very uh, well fascist for some. So a nihilist could say that there is reasons to prefer death over life, and I do prefer death over life, but I don't. I do, I'm not compelled to do so. What I would say is that's fine. I don't actually want you to kill yourself, but what I do want you to recognize is that by by even talking about these propositions. You are making the the hidden the hidden acceptance of the proposition that in order to engage in this conversation, there is some presumption that life is the basis for that. So what I would say is, if you want to engage in these conversations, then if you don't accept those two axioms, your position is at best contradictory. And I would say that. I throw out contradictory position. I throw out contradictory positions because of the law of non-contradiction. So, in, in in this case, then, for example, um, if you were to uh, engage in someone or, or talk with someone or have a dialogue, it is it is a, in it is necessary to assume these two or to have these two actions as a presupposition of your dialogue. Yeah, I, w I would say that if we're going to have a discussion about about anything regarding preference or morality or truth, you have to think that life is more valuable than death. Otherwise, you wouldn't be having the conversation, and you have to believe that consent to it, consent to propositions is important. Otherwise, you rejecting the proposition would be not relevant, and I could dismiss you. Okay, let, uh, let me give you an example. For example, let, let's say that there's a human being out there that exists that does not uh, agree with these two axioms at all. And because they they are not odd statements, and they're not assenting to any proposition, then they're just existing. Let's say in a in a or walking around in someone's lawn because well they're not familiar with the laws or anything. They're just even walking is an oxymoron. Yeah, but but they they don't care about that, you know. So they're not will they're not engaging in in rational arguments but if you were to if you were to push someone or push that guy away and say hey this is my lawn um 
would you would would that and the the and having the the two axioms as not a prop presupposition of your dialogue uh, would you say that would be something that is moral no i i i don't think that there's 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 morality there what i would say is if someone is is actually existing at all then they've already assented to proposition a even even if you want to say that they're not choosing to exist either way the second that they have the ability to not exist they would act on that if the is statement was consistent because it it turns out that preference is a bunch of is statements that become ought statements because agents use them so what i would say is if someone's walking in my lawn who disagrees with with premise a premise b i would be confused because a they're existing and b they're walking which would be an act of voluntary consent because you they could choose to sit down which would be another ascension so the and and, the, and anyone who's listening right now is probably thinking these are tautologies and that's the point of them. There's tautologies because they are necessarily part of reality. They are descriptions of reality. Life being preferable to death or existence being preferable to non-existence is a, is a part of reality because reality is necessarily affirming that existence is preferable to non-existence because existence is what is. It's a, it's a tautology by definition. And when we're assenting to propositions and engaging in conversations, by even starting a conversation, by accept by accepting a conversation's beginning, you're agreeing to axiom B, and and that's okay. It's just a tautology. So what I would say is, describing tautologies as a part of reality is the best way to start explaining the very very basics. And these sorts of things, once we get beyond them, we can actually have real conversations of what we should do as a society, which is why these conversations are important at the beginning. But once we establish these things, these conversations are are frighteningly non-useful. So I, I can see that um, I can see your foundations on the the, the strings that hold society together, which which might be the these two axioms, right? And so, um, for example, if there is a society, and the majority um, hold or probably dictate what is right and wrong, or what is what the laws or policies should be, um, and uh, in terms of what the minority wants to happen, uh, do you think that in a way it, they have the the right to do that, the, the majority to uh, claim a dictatorship over the minority? Do, do I think that majorities have the right to rule over minorities? No, I, I don't think that right exists. No, I, I don't think that there's, there's an inherent right to, to majority rule. I don't. I don't know. I don't know where that would well, come uh, from. Or where that would I be based. What I mean by right is not. It's not something intrinsic, but something that, um, in a socially uh, constructed society where balance and 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 progress is valued, um, it would be beneficial or for a society to have the majority dictate over the minority i mean the majority dictating over the minority is just a function of the fact that there's going to be people who agree on a lot of things and people who are in the minority of those decisions what i what i what i would say is is that generally speaking the way that i fix the problem of the majority screwing over the minority is setting up setting up rights that are guaranteed to people like like not not i guess i wouldn't say exactly what america does because america's rights are actually you know they're they're based in 
I guess I wouldn't say they're based, but most people understand them as based in a particular god. But what I would say is you set up citizenship rights or you set you set up rights of 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 being a, being a part of the nation and you would say that yes the majority can make decisions against the minority within respect of their right to exist or their right to voluntarily assent to propositions okay so and then for example if if uh, i might i'm if, if a minority or someone who was given these rights uh, let uh, were to say that um, expected more rights because of what they they subjectively in uh, thought they deserved. Um, would that be also uh, sort of a well a- an imbalance, I guess, of what they deserve? Yeah. So so that there can be societies of which exist where everyone is not is not afforded equal or equitable rights. And those societies exist, and those societies should work towards more of the society that I want to see. But I was running under the presumption that I'm in the best of all possible worlds, and I get to design the laws. And if that's not the case, then like obviously we have to rely on imperfect methods like democracy to try to get the best amount of rights available. So in terms of, for example, um, I, I'm curious what you would think of the American politics. Uh, I, I don't want to get into global politics, but uh, yeah. What do you think is happening right now in America? Um, we are screwed. I mean, that's 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 the best way to put it. I mean, we we live in a time where there appears to be no good options. Like, personally, I'm voting for Joe Biden, and that's just because I really, really think that Trump is a really, really de- existential danger to not. And I don't just mean American American politics. I mean the cohesion of, of, the, of the social order. Like I genuinely think that Trump is fostering a dialogue of which is making conversation impossible. And that's really important to me. And, and, and a dialogue of which conversation is impossible is the fastest way to destroy a country. And I would say that Trump, beyond his policy, beyond all the things that I could criticize him on, that's one thing that I think is rhetorically effective. But either way, I think we're screwed. And what I mean by screwed is I think we've passed the point of no return. We already hate each other. No one no one agrees on anything anymore. And the only way to stop that is to start moving the conversation back to dis- disagreements about policy are disagreements and not people hating each other. And I would say that we have to, we have to have open dialogue. That's one thing that I'm always I'm always hell bent on because I I don't want to live in a world where that isn't that doesn't happen. And I'm I'm guessing that uh, to be honest, I think that Trump is simply a response to the identity politics that then I think the Demo- Democrats started, but I don't know that's just me. I, I, I'm not. I'm. I'm, not, I'm um, but when it comes to identity po- identity politics, I think you're you're totally right on that. Um, well, tr- okay. So so two things, right? Trump Trump is a response in a way to the this this section of American people who feel like they got left behind. Like Trump, Trump is a response to the to the religious people, to the to the fundamentalist people, to the conservative folks who feel as though society is becoming less and less about them. And Trump is a direct response to that. But Trump is also a direct response to people who feel as though the 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 agenda of 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 kind of globalism and I don't mean globalism like the conspiracy I genuinely mean like working together with, with other countries there are some people who think that America should be the only focus of 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 the of the country and 
Trump said, hey, America first. And the problem is, is that America first doesn't work and it fails as a policy because it turns out that not having any diplomacy at all is the fastest way to foster hostile relations and get into another Cold War. But either way, Trump, Trump kind of preyed on the fears of a lot of people who thought, hey, the conversation isn't about me anymore and we're spending too much time on social issues. So let's get back to when America was great. You know, when, when America wasn't having all these social problems, when we were only focused on our country, like, let's get back to those days. And Trump preyed on those fears. And it turns out that many Americans still feel as though America post reconstruction is a is a worse place, which which I think is f full on not correct. And I would say that America was much better after racial integration and much better after after the New Deal. Like post-New Deal America is a good place to be in. It's not perfect, but it's a good place to be in. But these people are saying, no, America was better when it was more like, more like you know, the, the libertarian dream where everyone is, you know, doing their own thing and there is no, there is no social movements, anything like that. And it's, it's basically a reactionary response. And I wouldn't say identity politics. I really don't think the left plays too many identity politics. Like if pointing out racial inequality as identity politics, then sure. But what I would say is no one plays those politics more than people on the right. They love making the conversation about identity. They love doing it, whether it's gay, straight, trans, whatever. They love making it about identity. And the left has, for most of history not had the power in those in those realms and arenas and as soon as the right was forced to give an inch on that they got really 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 mad and i know that they did because i used to be a right winger and i know that we were really really okay. mad about that yeah uh, but but then for example um i i i have talked to a lot of people who wouldn't vote for both of them you know and it would just uh, let it uh happen but uh, in in this case i think that you're looking at biden as the lesser evil and that uh, the the I, I and the more that the democratic policies would be implemented, I, that would be the better case. Yeah. So I I've, I know people who aren't voting for either. I mean, I I think that they are ensuring that Trump's going to win re-election, which I think is really problematic. But I would say that either you support Trump or you support Biden, and by not voting at all, you're helping the incumbent, which is Trump. If Biden was the incumbent, you'd be helping Biden. It, it just happens to be the case that the incumbent benefits from low turner, low voter turnouts. It just happens to be the case. So what I would say is if you're okay with Trump winning, then don't vote. If you're okay with it, then don't vote. If you're not okay with Trump winning, then get out there and vote for Joe Biden, even though you don't like it and even though he's he's far from perfect and has policies that I think are stupid and he, and he uses religious appeals all the time, which I find monumentally irritating. But either way – the reason why it's called the lesser of two evils is because obvious it's obvious that one of them is lesser. And I would say that voting voting not voting for the lesser of two evils is endorsing the greater of two evils. Because you're saying you're okay with it. And if you're okay with if you're okay with the greater of two evils being elected, then please don't vote. Yeah. Um but then for example, it, uh let's say like what kind of America well, would, would you expect if Biden won? I, I, I'm not, I don't know the vision. I don't know his policies, what he stands for. What do you think he, he would happen? So right now in America, we're under a right-wing corporatist system. 
I mean, that's that's basically what we're under. We're under a, a heavily heavily deregulated corporatist system where there is little where there is little to no focus on actual actual true left wing policies, actual progressive policies. I think Joe Biden would move back to left wing corporate America, which is still the dumpster fire. It's still not the ideal situation, but it's far better than right wing corporate America because at least left wing corporate America is socially progressive. Yeah, but then, uh, for example, um, this is the real problem with that because when it comes to the economics, you know, um, a lot of uh, uh, right wingers would look at it as similar to what Bernie Sanders would. Uh, ideas would have which are they would uh, label as communist or socialist uh, I don't I'm not sure but th then th th that's why there's a, a there's a certain degree of loyalty to the, the to the conservative system or to the present or the traditional system and any changes that would uh, be would be a sort of risky is not something a lot of people are willing to take. I would just say that saying something is a socialist policy isn't actually an argument, right? Like saying, saying, "Hey, that's socialism," isn't an argument, right? You have to explain. You have to. You have to make an actual full-throated critique of socialism if you want to not implement it. So what I would say is, I wasn't a Bernie guy, and it's not because I don't like Bernie, and it's not because I don't agree with a bunch of his policy. I actually do. I wasn't a Bernie guy because I. I don't like endorsing candidates. I don't. I don't like doing it because I, I, I find I have too much skepticism to endorse candidates all the way. So what I said was, I agree with Bernie on these policies. I agree with Joe on these policies. I'm not endorsing either one of them, but I will be voting for either of them if, if they go against Trump. And so my 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 thing here is, is that right-wingers who will say that Joe Biden is a step closer to socialism is funny to me because it's kind of right but um i was i was saying something about how joe biden joe biden is a quote step closer to socialism if by step closer you mean he's he's dragging the united states away from white right-wing corporatism like he is in fact doing that but that's that's like saying going to the right is one step closer to fascism like i don't know it's it seems it seems to me to be sensationalism yeah, and uh, I want to then uh, dive a little deeper into uh, your own personal values and how you and how you think uh, when it comes to, for example, uh, daily activities. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it it I I, I been, because I I think that uh, you you you're someone who uh, act is actively on a very high level of thinking even in your daily life. Uh, how, how and that's why. I, and uh, you and you you identify as a perfectionist, so I I think that's something that um, I'm not wrong on. Yeah. So my brain, I've I've usually described it as a really really well drawn painting that makes no sense. So my brain is always trying to find creative solutions to problems, and my politics today are probably in this, like you, you probably wouldn't even be able to tell that they were the same person as they were a couple months ago because I'm literally I'm so confused by how much my politics change like every day I'm, I'm changing something new and it's because I'm trying to find the truth I'm not trying to find party lines so when when my brain is, is trying to figure something out it's saying here's some ideas that I think are potentially right now let's just say them out loud and just see if they sound good so like everything, everything I just said is a reflection 
of 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 what I've been learning about this week. And there was like a 95% chance that two months from now I'll be like, well, I have a different take now. And that's because, and this is this is a this is a blessing and a curse, but because I'm a, a pseudo-perfectionist and because I don't like holding positions that I think are wrong, that also means that I often change positions at a rapid pace. And it takes me a long time to settle on something that I that I think is true and I'm willing to argue all the time. So one of those positions that I'm convinced that I'm correct on is um, is healthcare. I think that I'm correct on my healthcare position, but then the then the problem is is that the nuances of that healthcare position change daily, and how I argue it changes weekly. So I'm always evolving in my understanding. So I don't know. The thing that scares me. What would scare me is if someone is arguing the same thing for years on years on years on years on years, because that tells me you're not listening. What I would say is someone whose arguments look vastly different every time you talk to them is someone who's genuinely trying to find what's true. And that's why my politics look are so sporadic. And that's why I'm like, because I'm, I'm trying to perfect every little part of it. Yeah. Like, fuck, dude. Like, I wish I was that smart when I was 18 years old. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you probably yeah. I think you probably were. My 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 thing is not that I'm that smart. It's and I say this to everyone, it's not that I'm smart, it's that I work hard. I'm actually not that much smarter than than the average individual. I wasn't fantastic in school and I wasn't blowing everyone out of the water with my raw intellect. The reason why I know shit about shit is because I research it. And I don't stop asking questions and it turns out that if you spend the multiplicity of your day learning new things, it shouldn't shock you when you start understanding things. And what I would say is raw intelligence is cool, and I'm sure that I'm intelligent enough to understand most concepts. But the reason why I have the speaking pattern that I do, the vernacular that I do, is not because it's just like this, this genetic intelligence that I've inherited. It's because I've genuinely spent every waking hour of the past two years trying to be right on every single issue. And I know it's not possible to be right on every single issue. That's not going to stop yeah. me from trying. And, um, and and this is what I meant, but that I, I admire that this sort of um, open-mindedness is something that I think every per person in the world should have. You know, because if, if you just keep... Um, uh, repeating some an idea that you've had for a long a long time and it, it doesn't change in any way yeah you're right it, it's it's something that it has been dogmatically indoctrinated to you and no thinking actually has taken place probably but um and um i think that the more dialogue human humanity has the more we keep talking to each other and realize that there are there will always be individual differences, not just in preference, but in in what will uh, in in every topic whatsoever. You know, we you could actually see that the that the the uh, the categories that we put people into, like for example, uh, right winger, left winger, um, Christian, theist, Muslim, whatsoever. Uh, in a way, they 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 can actually be something that you, you don't have to to assume every, their whole belief system to be this uni, in uniform with everybody you know but but i guess there are those people who are ignorant in that and are just blind dogmatic followers but i i really wish that humanity would step away from that kind of thinking and move on to 
independent and raw philosophical uh, thought. Yeah, I, I, you'll, you'll find almost no argument for me there. I, I would prefer if everyone actually did did any sort of investigation and didn't just believe whatever they heard their favorite political commentator believe. And I, and I fall victim to it too. Like I watch shows like like David Pakman and Kyle Kalinske, and sometimes I find myself nodding my head along, and I'm like, I don't even understand what they're saying. So it's it really it really has to be something that you that you consciously are aware of that it turns out that these issues are complicated enough to where taking a position and then saying, hey, I am just going to take this position and then never reevaluate it again because reevaluating it takes effort. I would say the best part of a position is hearing something that you think is convincing and then trying to prove it wrong. And if, and if you're doing that on a daily basis, like just today, I, 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 was, I was thinking about the situation in, in Venezuela. And I was like, hey, I think this sounds right. Now let's find every way I'm wrong. And at the end of the day, I found four ways that I was wrong and about six or seven that I was right. And I'm going to spend the rest of the night probably juxtaposing the two and figuring out which position I want to take. The point of the matter is not that I that I have the perfect solution on day one. The point of the matter is that the solution gets better the more and more that you work it, the more and more that you workshop your positions. Yeah, totally agree, dude. But um, this and then the, for uh, it's been a great conversation with you, Christian. And I and um, I want to ask you one last question, you know, because we're closing in on an hour, and you can uh, end however you want, uh, how long. Um, this the question is that um, being an individual who has uh, uh, left this sort of dogmatic uh, phase and that um, has been someone who is so open minded and. Uh, it has uh, developed a work ethic in in terms of learning about uh, everything, you know, all all sorts of all sorts of stuff. Um, what do you think uh, an individual should do to make this world a, a, a one of the best ca uh, case scenarios that we could, humanity could have? Stop talking so much. Listen more. You're not always right. And please, for the love of anything that is holy, stop pretending like you know things you don't because it turns out that being ignorant is the worst feeling in the world and you know exactly what it feels like when you pretend to know something just to sound like you're part of the crowd or so that you don't get made fun of by your peers it turns out that that is not the best way to find truth and be okay with being wrong be okay with saying you don't know because the worst thing you can do is convince yourself that you know things that you don't know dick about. Christian, uh, thank you so much for being on my show. And um, I hope we could have more uh, collaborations. And if you want to plug anything, uh, just say so. Um, the only thing I'm going to plug is that everyone watches more of this podcast. Because this, this is these are great conversations. They don't happen often enough. And if you Google my name, you'll find all my stuff. So... Thanks for having me on, Elmo. It was a real pleasure. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Thank you.